Welcome to Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy, and Daniel Hogan is in the studio. This week, our guest is Lorraine Pepper. She is the founder and the CEO of Textile Exchange. In just a moment, she's going to be with us. Tell us all about the exciting work that they're doing there. This is Heartstock. Remember that you can email us at heartstockradio at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. We'll be right back with Lorraine. This land was made for you and me As I went walking that ribbon of Welcome back to Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy. Today's guest is Lorraine Pepper, and she is with Textile Exchange. Hello, Lorraine, and thank you so much for being on Heartstock. Thank you. It's great to be with you today. Indeedy. We were just speaking a bit, and you're joining us from Wyoming. We're here in Montana, so we're sharing a lot of the beautiful fall happenings this time of year. Where in Wyoming are you? I presently live in Lander, Wyoming, right in the middle of the state at the base of the Wind River Range. So it's a a beautiful place to be, and I have family here and kids and grandkids, so it's a heart home. Mm -hmm. And tell us a little bit about Textile Exchange and um, the events that led to you founding it. (laughs) Well, Textile Exchange is actually celebrating our 20th anniversary this year. So we've been doing a little bit of that jog down memory lane. Um, So Textile Exchange is a global nonprofit. So we work actively all around the globe. Really, it's about driving positive impacts that deliver on positive change when it comes to climate change or water, stewardship, land use. And it's really focused like the first word in our name is textiles, because as people, we sleep on textiles, we love and live and play ball and chase and, you know, our curtains and and couches. Textiles are a rich part of our life. And most people really don't think about where that pair of jeans came from or where that, you know, the cotton sheets came from or that lovely wool, wool sweater that keeps us warm this time of year. And so it really is focusing on how we deliver more positive impacts around fibers and materials because historically, many of our fibers and materials have had really negative, terrible environmental and social impacts. So it really is about shifting the transformation, shifting the conversations into making proactive changes. It's the, you know, it's the current price paradigm and challenges that have created the pollution and the poverty and problems. So it's really about refocusing our energies on the value, the value of natural fibers that respect the land, regenerative grazing and and production practices and recycling and circular solutions and um, all those kinds of things. So it's a, it's been lovely. It's been a, cha- a challenge. And, and quite frankly, we are, you know, making a dent. And we have a lot of brands and people and, and consumers, as we're talking to today, that really care about the clothes they wear. It's, you know, we've, we've cared about the food we eat, but it's not just about food. It's fiber, too. So it is about caring about the things you have in your life mm-hmm. and doing the most responsible thing you can do. And I'm curious, I was noticing in your background that you come from several generations of farmers. Yeah. <laughs> is, this, is this what led you to founding Textile Exchange? Uh, what brought you Absolutely. to this? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I grew up on a cotton farm out in West Texas. 
And uh, my granddaddy was like old school German farmer and really had a strong love and respect for the land. So you may say I'm an organic cotton farmer because I don't know any better. It's certainly about my heritage, (laughs) but it's also my legacy. And so when we, um, my husband and I started in 1979, we started farming our family land and and it was really interesting transformation because he had grown up on a very chemically intensive farm. When I was growing up as a little girl, they were still using arsenic acid, you know, as a defoliant for cotton. And at the time we started this in statistics, cotton was grown on less than 3% of the aggregate land and used over 22% of the pesticides and chemicals. So it was a it was a very chemically intensive crop. It's gotten much better, but we still have a long ways to go. So growing up in that environment and saying we do this differently, um, my husband was on the learning curve into farming naturally and in touch with the land and in harmony with natural systems. And so it was really interesting to see him evolve and, and grow into that place and space. And so we were a part of the enabling legislation in 1994 for the National Organic Program, and our farm became organic, certified organic. We were in principle that way, but we became certified organic in 1991. And then it's kind of the start of like, who knew that we would grow from like six families that were doing that to over 40 families now in the Texas Organic Cotton Marketing Cooperative, that it would grow from one country to 23 countries that are growing organic cotton. It's not just about organic cotton. Cotton is one of the fibers we wear. It's about a portfolio of solutions. And so when we started the journey with cotton, it was about banding together with other companies like Patagonia and Nike and and uh, the North Face and Maggie's Organics and EcoSport. And there's just a number of them. And now we have over 812 members that support this. So it's really an evolution of banding together. Our first tagline is together we can make a difference. And, and so late 1990s and into early 2000s, we're like, you know, we've really got a lot of work to do on harmonization of standards and traceability and transparency and chain of custody and standards and and different things like that. Things that while I was the farmer's wife and, you know, worked with the cooperative to educate and train, we really needed to have a nonprofit that could help us, again, with the harmonization of standards. So kind of the DNA of what we do is we identify barriers to growth and then take that collective connected action to drive change. So that's kind of the why we started and uh, in, uh, we got incorporated in 2002. So 20 years in the making. Wow, that's amazing. So kind of tell us about your personal evolution going from the farmer's wife to spearheading all the work that you do. <laughs> At, uh, yeah. Can you just kind of share how that, that all happened? Well, it's so interesting. I've been involved in the farm and been passionate about land and people of the land. And, you know, our farm is right smack dab in the middle of the field. And so it's truly a way of life and and cherishing that life and raising my family there and and wanting my farm was a safe place for my kids to run and play. But as you looked at the chemical use that was in a lot of the other farms, it was just um, kind of shocking on that. And my husband and I met at Abilene Christian University, and I was actually <laughs> getting my degree in fashion design. Oh. I love textiles. Oh. I grew up sewing. <laughs> uh, my grandmother taught me to sew. I, I love making, you know, I was like in high school before I had a store-bought dress. And 
you know, it's just a, a different way of, of life. And I, you know, I love the, the feel of fabrics. I've got knitting project on my table as we speak. <laughs> I'm teaching my granddaughters how to sew. I love the expression and all the beauty and the things that, you know, clothing brings to us and how we decorate our home. So I was all into that. And then met a guy that wanted to farm with my granddaddy. So I'm like, hmm, this degree is not going to do me a whole lot of good out in the middle of a cotton patch. (laughs) (laughs) So I continued my education and got a degree in home economics education as well as early childhood education. So I think what some of the important training I had in learning to be a good educator and a Montessori certified early childhood educators like you need to see it hear it, taste it, feel it, make it real. When you think about the importance, I think education is the key to drive transformational change. So when you know the impact that this this is having on the land and the water, when you see the impact of overgrazing, when when you see the impact of the negative things that have been happening, then, then you as a consumer, me as a person, you as a person, want to say, okay, what can I do to be a part of the change? And so I think education, so I feel like my background in education has served us well. And and then in that evolution, you know, I talked about us becoming certified or in the early nineties, of course, the board had the cooperative had a board and everything. And we were talking about 10 to 15% of our cotton was falling outside of spinning specifications. So that means it was too short to make good socks, too short to make good jeans. And so the guys were like, what should we do with this short staple cotton? So I did a little bit of research and decided we needed to go into non-wovens. So we actually began a farmer-owned company called Organic Essentials. And uh, we made cotton balls and cotton rounds and swabs. And we were the first company out there with organic cotton Mm. feminine hygiene tampons. It was quite transformational. We were in all all the wild oats and and, uh, whole foods and, you know, the, the... all the different um, natural product stores in all 50 states. And that was really going really well. We were into that, learning about the supply chain. So I was one of the companies, one of the voices, one of the people that we were working together in kind of informal groups of, you know, how do we promote and move organic cotton forward in a, a more proactive manner. And then a tsunami hit my life. In 2005, my husband was diagnosed with a stage four multiform glioblastoma. And these are tumors and cancers that are found in men that are, especially in men 40 to 60, that either work in the petrochemical or ag industries. So like a lot of cancers, they're associated with chemical use and pesticides. And like I said, my husband had grown up on a very chemically intensive farm and his father had died of leukemia just a few years before that. So I lost him in 07, sold the company as Organic Essentials. And at that point in time, organic was no longer important. It was imperative. We needed to really stop the use of toxic and persistent pesticides in our world. And so there was also an opportunity while I was a founding member of the exchange, there was an opportunity at that point in time to step into a leadership role. So after my husband passed, I joined the executive team of the exchange and I was a chairman of the board as a co-founder, but I stepped into an executive role and a a leadership role in the organization itself after he passed in 07. So it's been a personal transformation of like personal growth and development. It's also based upon a fire, a fire in my heart, a fire in my belly 
that we can make this world different if we're willing to step in and be a part of the change. So I love what, you, you know, the radio shows that you guys have. It's, it's like, how do we be a part of that change, be a part of the transformation, be deliberate intent and intentional. Read the labels on the food you eat. Well, certainly read the labels on the clothes you wear and the sheets you sleep on and choose pro- products that are more responsible, more eco-friendly, more socially responsible. Be a part of the change in every component of your life. And what brought you to Wyoming? You went from Texas <laughs> straight directly to Wyoming? Is that what happened? Well, my husband passed in 07. My parents had retired here and my son was living here. So it just was easier. My dad had a stroke about nine years ago and he was the primary caregiver of my mom. So I'm either on the road or on the phone with my job. And so it really doesn't matter where I live. And so it just really made sense for me to relocate here. It's a heart home. The location's lovely. I have four grandchildren in town. I also have three grandchildren south of Fort Worth. But it just really made sense to me to move here to be a part of the support group. That way my parents could stay with their coffee drinking buddies and their church family and all of that. So I have a cozy little house that my mother called my tree house. And so it's a lovely place to live. You're in Montana, so you understand how this. But I'm at the farm quite a bit as well and back and forth. And of course, you know, three weeks ago, I was in South Africa visiting wool and mohair farms. So in my role, um, it is about, again, finding barriers to growth for these preferred fibers for the organic and responsible and regenerative and helping connect to marketplace. We know we can grow it, but we can't grow it on a maybe. So it truly is building the market partners to send those clear market signals. So consumers need to say, hey, we want responsible and organic and regenerative products and send those clear messages to brands because there's a want, they're the ones who are able to send those clear messages to the, to the cut and sew, to the knit, knitters and the weavers and the spinners so that those messages get back to the farm gate. And what I'd like to do next is really delve into the operation, the day-to-day operation and impact of textile exchange and how folks, if they should desire, could get involved. And we're going to take our quick midway point break in just a moment. We will be back with Lorraine and talk more about textile exchange. This is Heartstock. You're listening to Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy. And our guest today is Lorraine Pepper. We were just talking about organics, and specifically organic textiles. And the way you mentioned South Africa, so I have to, I have to ask, you know, just, it's not just in the United States where you guys are operational. Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, You know, the evolution, did you start here in the U.S. and then expand from there? That's interesting. We have been virtual from our conception um, because fibers are sourced from around the world and manufactured around the world. So we've been kind of global in mindset. So while we are legally um, incorporated here in the United States as a 501c3, so we are a for good nonprofit. So we are here to deliver public benefit. And the way we do that is educating and working on supply networks, encouraging the growth and the development of, of what we call preferred fibers. And, and that's kind of a bigger umbrella 
for things like organic and regenerative and, you know, reduced pesticides or responsible wool or responsible down. So it's a bigger umbrella for a portfolio approach to whatever fiber you're using, you move it along a more responsible continuum. Mm-hmm. And tell us a little bit about how you operate. Are you educating the consumer and or meeting with brands? How do you create the impact? It's a it's a multifaceted program in that we work directly within the market and the supply chain. And so we work through that. We're one of the we're very unique in that way in that we work all the way from the farm gate, whether that's the cotton farmer or the shepherd that's, you know, has the mohair goats or or the wool, or all the way back to the forestry level for man-made salosics. So we work all the way back to that origin point for that fiber material. Then we work through the entire supply network where that spinner, weaver, knitter, et cetera, and the brands. So a lot of the education is focused toward the brands on having a fiber material strategy, sending clear market messages. The brands are the ones doing the education to consumers. So we don't do direct education to consumers. We're really working in that supply chain to make sure the product gets through and to the consumers. Now, we do have a suite of standards. And so we we offer a lot of tools, not only to the brands, but also to the farmers and that conduit of here's a chain of custody standard so that that we a standard has a purpose of it delivering the intended benefits to the intended beneficiary. So when you as a consumer buy that organic or responsible wool product, that shirt, that sweater, or responsible down uh, jacket with recycled nylon and materials, you as a consumer can have confidence in that product because it's certified all the way back to, to the source. And so we offer a suite of tools, whether that's market reports, education, we work on harmonization standards, we work on we're looking at advocacy and labeling and, and, and things like that of how do we educate uh, the supply network. But standards are one of our big tools. And so that would be something consumers would see is that responsible wool or down or organic cotton, you know, logo on those products to say, yes, I'm a consumer and I have confidence through this supply network that I'm supporting change at the farm gate level. And so we offer a number of suites, but we work through the entire piece of the supply chain. And again, we're one of the very unique organizations that do that. So we have, I think, 100 plus team members in 16 or 17 different countries. And so we're, we've got boots on the ground where these key fibers are grown around the world. And then we have boots on the ground in major market areas to do the education and training for, you know, the brands and retailers that are, you know, delivering product to consumers. And I would imagine this changes quite a bit from time to time, but in the, in the stage where you are currently, what are your biggest challenges? Biggest challenges for market transformation are hmm, kind of built on three different things. And um, there is a report on our website called the Friction Points. The Climate Board help us with it. So we do have a big, hairy, audacious goal of reduction of 45% of greenhouse gases by 2030. So every product that you wear has an impact. Some of those impacts are good. Some of them are bad. Then how do we move along that continuum? So for example, in animal-based fibers, animal-based fibers are going to be to reduce that greenhouse gas. It'll be about 
rotational grazing, about restorative practices for land, you know, reinsertion of riparian areas. So each fiber is going to have a, a unique set of challenges and farmers are going to need training. They're going to need education. They're going to need, you know, resources like farmers are going to need resources and, and money to actually plant cover crops and buy the different seeds for seed rotation. So there's different barriers for adoption of best practices. Farmers would do it um, in a heartbeat, you know, if they had the training and the education and, and the resources. But so many of the farmers, they're the poorest people in the world. And the extent of poverty in some of the countries when you go to India and Tanzania and other places is extreme. And so training and educating farmers and giving them better resources is one of one of the obstacles. And so it is about uh, working to invest directly in supply chains to change and transform at that level. The other big barrier is it's price. Consumers want to buy the best deal. They want to wait till it's on sale. They want to go to a big box star. And if you're paying four or five dollars for a T-shirt, then you really have to question, like, are you supporting poor wages? in a poor country, you know, are you part of the problem? Are you part of the solution? Because it's the current price paradigm that has created the push to the bottom has created the poverty and the pollution and the problems. So do you want to buy a cheap t-shirt that's going to fall apart in 10 washings? Are you going to buy a quality t-shirt that's double stitched at a responsible fiber that was made in a responsible mill that paid fair wages? You may pay $20 or $30 for that t-shirt, but it's going to last longer and you can buy to your values. So the biggest problem, the biggest barrier to adopting preferred fibers is price. And so again, price paradigm that's created the pollution, the poverty problems are shifting into a value paradigm that you vote with your dollars, you invest with your dollars to buy a value product, one that's more durable, one that's well-made, one that votes to your values of supporting fair wages for people all the way through the supply chain and for farmers on the ground. And thank you so much for saying that so plainly in such a straightforward manner, because this topic has come up several times. And I have to say, you have hit the nail on the head in this. Yeah. And I, That's I one hugely, thing a farmer can do. We can use a hammer well. We know yes. how to hit nails. And, and speak plainly. Thank you so much. So this is something that has come up a couple times also on our show. I'm always amazed. I have this Patagonia hemp, I think it's a hemp cotton shirt, which mm-hmm. um, is my favorite shirt. And it just it's gets better. lovely, be- lovely yeah. fiber. Yep. Yes. And it just gets better every time I wash it. So where are we at with hemp, both in the United States and globally? I have done a lot of scouring and it's not the easiest stuff to find, especially if it's made in the U.S. <laughs> Very, very true. Yeah, most of the hemp production is overseas in China and Poland. And like cotton or wool or anything, it's like you can grow it. But if you don't have a gin or a mill or a redding, so there are some production areas happening in the United, specific to the United States. We know we can grow it. Uh, the big barrier right now is processing. And so it um, it has to go to a redding mill to prepare the fiber in order to for it to go into spinning and so those facilities are well established like i said in china and poland and right now we don't have some of those you can do it in a lab you can do it in a small 
pilot kind of space, but actually to take it into commercial production is going to require significant, and that was where you have to get to critical mass. You have to have a lot of volume to justify um, several million dollars of investment in processing. So that's kind of where it's at. I would say there is a strong, a stronger growth and demand for hemp, but it's really not to the place where it can support this scale of what needs to happen for investing in production. It'll get there at some point in time, but, you know, nobody who wants to take that leap of faith to build, you know, multi-million dollar mill and it not be profitable for several years because it's, you don't have the volume. And so right now, a lot of the production is still, the the production and scale is offshore. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to touch on the issues you mentioned earlier about climate. And I know I don't always, I think more on the on terms of pesticides and negative impact, you know, just even the human resources aspect of it and people not being treated or paid fairly. But how is it that we can impact climate with fibers and textiles? Well, most of them are land-based fibers. And so when you think of land and use of land, responsible use of land is going to be the key way to drive some of this change. So it is about regenerative agriculture, soil health issues. So when you think of cotton and hemp and linen and all the animal fibers, really focusing on buying fibers and switching to fibers that are responsibly supporting use of land. The other big thing is run a campaign and say if you're using synthetic fertilizers like we're doing across the entire cotton industry and other places like Stop. You know, that is one of the biggest sources, you know, 25% or plus of the the greenhouse gas impacts in cotton is in other crops, whether that's corn or anything else, is around synthetic fertilizer use. And so it's like stop that, switch to lower till or minimum till issues and start using cover crops and rotational crops to build healthy soils rather than synthetic fertilizer. So I would say to use your voice, read those labels. And so the reduction of greenhouse gases can happen with greater use and responsible use of of land when it comes to the land-based fibers. The other big way is a lot of our fibers, if you look in your closet, they're going to be polyester, nylon. They're going to be synthetics. Those come directly from petroleum. They are a petroleum-based fiber. They are man-made. They're synthetics. And so it's really important to, number one, not put those in landfills. Get them into recycled solutions and only buy recycled. Don't support the use of virgin petroleum use and virgin you know, polyester. So really look for recycled solutions. So consumers are going to be key into you know, finding solutions that reduce, you know, global impact. So these are the ways that we can reduce greenhouse gases. So it's buying durable, buying less. It would be use recycled. And then, of course, when it comes to all the natural fibers, find organic and regenerative solutions. And is there anything that you can share with us? What lays ahead for Textile Exchange and how folks might find you? Well, we have a website, of course, textileexchange.org, and there's a lot of information and and reports and everything that are there for those of you that want to do a deeper dive. But ultimately, it is about caring, you know, caring for what you wear. You care for what you eat. Make sure that you care about and take care on what you're sleeping on. And when you replace those, don't go buy out new ones, but when you replace them, 
replace them with something that's more responsible and uh, supports the quality of life for people and planet. Yes, so making what we have last longer and uh, replacing it with something that is better for the planet, indeed. And and what lays ahead? Is there anything up and coming, any events or um, activities that we can look forward to? You bet. (laughs) We have webinars all the time. And of course, we're celebrating 20th, as I mentioned, our 20th anniversary. We're having um, our annual conferences in Colorado Springs this year, the week of November the 15th. And and so there'll be a lot of educational activities, more industry-focused. But yeah, if you're a consumer and want to learn more, I'm sure that there are some of those that could be made available. But yeah, big conference, 20th anniversary, big celebration in November. Mm, in Colorado Springs in November just sounds lovely. Yeah, <laughs> yes. It's, a, it's another beautiful spot on our planet um, that we love. So... Thank you so much, Larray. You know, this is near and dear to my heart, of course, when you said fashion design and your grandmother teaching you to sew and all of those things. We have a, a lot of that in common. And I really appreciate the work that you're doing and uh, the beautiful way you're, you're using your gifts. Thank you. Thank you very much. Have a lovely day and enjoy the fall. Indeed. This is Heartstock. We'll be back next week. Until then, peace. Hardstock Radio is a production of KBMF 102.5 Butte America Radio. Hear our programs every Friday at 5 p.m. Mountain Standard Time via live stream at butteamericaradio.org.